This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think the answer to that question depends on how you have come to be famous. There are many people that we we can probably think of, of course, figures throughout history who achieved fame not because it was something that they were specifically seeking out, but because of otherwise good acts. I mean, even in the Christian church and Christian history, we have figures whose names, you know, and work went far beyond a time and place, and they achieved a kind of renown based on the goodness of their works or their writing or teaching. So I think fame is probably fine, (laughs) you know, it's neutral, let's say, if it comes to you as something that you weren't seeking, but as a byproduct of virtue. When we get into the seeking of fame, as a as the end in and of itself as the goal in and of itself that's where i think we get into spiritually dangerous territory and even even if you might think well i'm going to use my fame for good things like once i achieve a certain level of notoriety then i can share the gospel with more people or i can offer a good christian witness to the world but uh I tend to think that the people who can handle fame the best are those that are not seeking it at all and do not actually want it. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something about the the deliberate seeking of fame that is uh, inherently negative. Yeah. Um, one of my, I think I've told the story before on this podcast, but one of my favorite stories about my wife is a daughter, young, when she was in her tweens, she was really obsessed with fame and being, you know, like like every tween is. Um, and she asked my wife, but mom, don't you want to be famous, you know, someday? And my wife just immediately turned around and said, sweetie, if, if I get famous at this point in my life, it's not going to be for something good, you know, it's going to be, <laughs> it's some crime that I've committed or, you know, or like I finally snapped and killed one of you guys. So... Uh, mm-hmm. so <laughs> yes, that the, is a negative type of fame, just to be clear. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're fame for doing <laughs> negative things, yeah. Um, and then how is then fame diff- different than celebrity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I argue in the book that celebrity is a distinctly modern phenomenon that really relies almost solely on the use of mass media to cultivate an image of oneself or even a personal brand, quote unquote, uh, that people engage through mediated forms that offer a kind of false intimacy. Um, And, you know, mass media is so easily manipulated. I talk just as a really quick example, I talk in the book in the chapter about the book publishing industry, how people can now buy fake followers (laughs) with they're they're essentially robots, but they can purchase 
fake followers online to deceptively amplify the appearance of their celebrity so that they can, you know, get sponsored content or book deals or speaking deals or whatever it is. But um, yeah, it is the it is the reliance on mass media to cultivate a personal image. And I think especially what's important for Christians to think about is the lack of proximity, you know, the the social power when you're standing on a stage or in the spotlight and you have thousands of people listening to you and hanging on your every word and then kind of behind closed doors, very few people actually know who you are and what your daily life is like. And in that lack of proximity and that distance and isolation comes in, you know, all sorts of problems that I think we've seen exposed very publicly in American evangelicalism in the last you know, five to 10 years. Yeah, and I'm sure some people are thinking about it right now. Um, and, and even, you know, I've published uh, nerdy books, but even in, in the nerdy Christian book <laughs> space, you know, when you're speaking to other nerds or nerdy people who are interested in the topic, I mean, it, it comes up from the marketing department of the publisher. Uh, how many followers mm-hmm. do you have? Uh, what kind of people could you get to endorse this book? So, I mean, it's old, like, Roman honor-shame culture. Like, can you associate mm. yourself with honorable people and – uh, that will bring more honor to your book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you definitely get a small taste of, oh, okay, this is a real this is a real thing. This is how we sell books uh, these days. Um, and now we're on a podcast just going out to a couple thousand people. <laughs> um, so are we not guilty of mm. everything that you've discussed in this book? I actually was thinking about <laughs> that. Like, is there not a small way in which I'm just doing, I'm in a microcosm doing everything that you're saying we shouldn't be doing in this book? That's why I came on this podcast to say, <laughs> to convict you of the sin of having a podcast. Wait, no, are other people but... coming on the line now? So it's, <laughs> it's intervention. Well, I think the fact that you're asking that question, though, is probably a sign of health. I do think that anybody who has some measure of like public-facing image or responsibility or calling, if we want to use like kind of a calling or vocational framing... And I, I include myself in that very much. So has to be asking questions of motive. And am I doing this because I want to start a conversation that I think is helpful for the church, for my listeners? Like, am I wanting to teach and shape and inspire? I'd say all of those are very valid and good callings. And a podcast allows you to do that with far more people than would be able to attend your courses as a professor, mm-hmm. right? But it can be easy, especially when you're thinking about, you know, like book deals or growing a platform. It's almost like the platform becomes the point in and of itself. And then you forget why you're building the platform. Yeah, let's talk and about so- that for a second. Cause mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, so I have noticed this is what I see on social media. Mm-hmm. When someone goes on Twitter and says, hey, what books are you all reading? Mm-hmm. Like, I know exactly what they're doing, right? <laughs> there's like, this, Wait, what are they doing? Oh, the, these, there's all of these like chimey little questions that you're given by uh, social media, <laughs> like uh, I don't know what they're called, aggregators, people who teach you how to multiply your accounts. 
is you you get because you know one of the things that gets the most response is people just asking people dumb questions you know like mm-hmm. what do you guys think I'm thinking about right now you know or whatever you know <laughs> or tell me about your dreams uh, you know things that nobody if you're in the room together would ever say to somebody else right but um, the, they're uh, like uh, they're like icebreakers yes yeah exactly icebreaker that, questions and they and they work. To drive engagement, to drive to drive engagement, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To get the bots the bots lowered and the engagement higher, and then hopefully followers. If you're asking interesting questions, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I mean, I see like earnest people who I would respect, and I see them do this, and I think, oh, are they just doing that thing where they're trying to get more followers mm-hmm. uh, to build the platform to get their number? And to be fair, like. Mm-hmm. Your book guaranteed at some point went through some calculation at the publishers where they <laughs> put in your platform numbers and whatever those look mm-hmm. like, and they generated like uh, an advance for that. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think there's a way in which you could say, uh, would you? Well, would you say there there are ways in which these are all good and necessary means to thinking about production, not wasting people's time, getting goods out into mm. the marketplace of ideas. Um, but they all have this edge that you discuss throughout the book that can t- – I mean, that's what I felt as I mm-hmm. read you. was just like anything can turn on you if you don't watch mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So, yeah, going back to kind of the question of motive. Because I, I don't want to assume everybody who asks a question on social media is like, ah, <laughs> uh, they're just yeah. trying to gin You're up, right. you know. <laughs> that's but, not fair. Some people really do want to know what I dreamed about last night. <laughs> <laughs> or you know some people are just chatty and maybe yeah. lack a lot of in-person community which is a whole other yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. separate but related problem so i don't want to i don't want to presume too much about others motives but i do want to interrogate you know even as i am <laughs> hoping that people read my book in- interrogating well why do you want that do you want it because you want people to seriously wrestle with ideas and you know ultimately lead to a healthier church or understanding of christian formation or is it because you want this book to sell well so that you can get another book deal so that mm. you can keep on you know, making money, writing books and selling books and growing the platform to keep the whole thing going. And I think what raises, I should say, yellow flags for me that I see on social media is when what is being put forth is more more of a personality than ideas or thoughts, because that's where you get more into the possibility of like a false intimacy where people feel an attachment to a figure that, you know, they don't know they've never met. If they spend any time with them in real life, they may not like them very much, but they're attached in this, you know, I talk about parasocial relationships in Mm -hmm. the book and our, why we get attached to these figures. And some of it is this, um, this like need to feel, an intimate connection to people we admire. Some of it is just plain old hero worship. Some of it is if I'm connected to this person, I feel like I'm part of this bigger community. I see this a lot on Instagram with like women influencers kind of building Mm. community around their personality. (laughs) That makes me nervous. So I think I, I feel, and this I think too goes back to, you know, questions of discernment that we have to ask in book publishing. I mean, my day-to-day job is as 
editorial director of of Brazos Press. And when we're looking at proposals, you know, what is being offered? Is it just kind of personal inspiring content that's really just about the person? Or is there kind of idea? Are there ideas and research and kind of more formational information that's being offered. I feel more comfortable with that, at least Mm. in the world of book publishing, than books that are essentially just um, kind of a mechanism to keep driving numbers up, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think the book was helpful on so many fronts. Even the Billy Graham, because I think everybody's kind of used to dogging on Billy Graham these days. Uh, mm-hmm. But I like how you kind of both uh, properly dogged him <laughs> where where he has admitted fault uh, and yes. maybe where he hasn't in some ways. But you also kind of highlighted him as an early example of somebody who was aware of their celebrity as they were gaining it, that yes. social influence, but without the proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about um, – the neglected parts of the uh, Modesto agreement, or I forget what it was called. Is that right? Um, yeah, the Modesto Manifesto. Man of, Modesto Manifesto. It rolls. Evangelicals like need things to rhyme. Yeah, of course. And they like alliterations. And the devil hates alliteration. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, early early in his preaching and evangelistic ministry, Billy Graham was relatively young. He was in his 20s, early 30s, and had achieved an immense amount of celebrity uh, attention because he was such a charismatic and dynamic preacher. You know, he was plainly likable. He was handsome. He was, you know, exciting and energizing to listen to. And the newspapers and radio really started highlighting him and drawing crowds to his crusades. And as he and some of his closest ministry colleagues became aware of how their platform, so to speak, they didn't talk about platform then, but Mm -hmm. so to speak was just ballooning and exploding. You know, I think rightly they kind of were trying to wrestle with the, some of the unique temptations that can come with that kind of social power where people treat you like a VIP and then you let that go to your head and you start believing your own hype and then you start believing you can kind of do whatever you want because you're that important. And so the the aspect of the Modesto Manifesto that we hear most often now is called the Billy Graham Rule, which is essentially he and his colleagues agreed to never meet alone with a woman who wasn't their wives. And I I critique that and I have in, in other spaces as well. But because that is such a lightning rod kind of issue. We tend to forget the other points of the manifesto and the broader context. So one of the things they agreed to was, of course, like financial reporting and integrity. So having very public records about how much Graham and other leaders were being paid. And then crucially also saying, we're not going to set his or other salaries based on crowd attendance and ask for donations at the Crusades because that can obviously be very emotionally manipulative. Like, you know, 
put crudely, like you should give to the church or like you, you might suffer eternal consequences. Like, so they agreed to that. And then they also agreed to always try to work with um, local churches. So, you know, I, I do critique the fact that Graham, I think in the shape of his ministry tended to, undermine the work of the local church or maybe the the centrality of the local church in a person's discipleship. But the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was always trying to kind of direct attendees to the local church to say, like, it's not enough to just, like, go to the crusade, have an experience, and then go home. Like, you should get plugged in, quote, you know, quote, unquote. Um, but also to do to like to partner with local churches to do outreach to do you know kind of uh, mercy ministry type of work to always be building up the local church instead of uh, tearing it down or trying to replace mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and I I think that was helpful too that um, that they were actively thinking about it. and even even as you said in the book, almost every report would mention how good looking. Uh, Billy Graham was, uh, mm-hmm. and you just mentioned that he was handsome, right? And I just remember thinking, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, uh, I never thought about it before, but I guess he was kind of a, a looker back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, I actually hadn't thought about it before either. And then I read the book Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen oh, yeah. Dumay on you know, masculinity teachings in the last hundred years in American evangelicalism, and she found in one of the kind of many uh, Graham biographies that he, his, his looks were commented on by a lot of Mm. people in the day. Like, and he also talked about his physical physique, like that he would like, he had a very strong like fitness regimen. I never knew this about him, but like, I guess he was, yes, he was considered an attractive man in his ministry. Well, I came up only knowing like the 70 and 80-year-old or maybe 90-something-year-old Graham, so. <laughs> right. We're not saying that he wasn't a fine-looking man at that time. We're just saying that, Look, he, that he, he was probably past his prime. nobody's indicting his looks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't hear what we're not saying. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that struck me, I was telling my wife as I was reading your book, is um, how often anger came up as a factor mm. as a as a prominent feature of people who you were highlighting as possibly celebrity pastors gone wrong basically mm-hmm. um, and I wonder did you notice that as well or did I I, I might have been tuned in that for my own personal experiences but um, mm. but did you notice that or what role does anger play in in celebrity mm-hmm. I guess yeah mm-hmm. yeah well I'm glad you picked up on that because it's something that the New Testament warns against repeatedly for, for for all of us, but I think especially when we're thinking about qualifications for spiritual leadership. But it, I think it's really easy to miss hmm. because in so many of these kind of fallen celebrity pastor stories, the thing that is highlighted is either you know, kind of sexual or financial impropriety. Those are the things that we fixate on and are maybe like more salacious or more easily identifiable. But it yeah, it is the case, like looking at the story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, the story of Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, um, you know, Ravi Zacharias to an extent, it seemed to be that whenever these leaders were, 
whenever, whenever others tried to hold these leaders accountable to some extent, or even just express <laughs> thoughts and ideas that were counter to the leader's thoughts and ideas, mm-hmm. there was a kind of doubling down or a real resistance, you know, and it, it's probably the case that the qualities that make you a really dynamic, charismatic, you know, like builder of an organization are the same qualities that can so easily lead to you know, narcissistic patterns, um, basically bullying forms of verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. And I just think we have to kind of in the wake of these stories grapple with the lingering effects of that anger, um, a kind of unrighteous anger. Like if you are, if your pastor <laughs> is, you know, screaming at the staff for 45 minutes and you're in that staff meeting and you are just berated for doing things in a way that is not in accordance with the pastor's plan, that really, that really affects you spiritually. You know, it is, that can really leave a lasting mark. Um, and I would say, you know, we all have moments of anger. We all have moments of irritation. We all you know, lose our cool. But I would say it seems like if there, if there seems to be a pattern early on, that, that seems hmm. to me like as much of a yellow or red flag as someone who is overly flirtatious or really uh, secretive about their money or their technology. You know, like it is as serious as some of these more obvious problems. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was shocked by the 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 more obvious problems like someone juggling multiple cell phones or having a, an arrangement with an IT department to delete emails. You know that I, I, yeah. Even knowing some of the details, I did not know those. And so y- you also discuss um, that move from privacy. It was very helpful again that you said no. People need privacy. They need to have their private life, their private family. Uh, but how mm-hmm. that creeps over into secrecy. Uh, and so th- this is another telltale sign that when privacy creeps to secrecy, um, I guess, mm-hmm. how would you, you know, imagining that there are lots of people, I know a couple who listen to this podcast who have a couple thousand person congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, how, like, how would you know when this has gone awry? What would be the key, mm-hmm. the yellow flags, as you said earlier? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't feel comfortable saying anybody should be able to read the lead pastor's email inbox. <laughs> like, right. I don't, you know, yeah, we know. all, that would not we fly. all, yeah. no, it would not. Um, I do think though, looking at the request for a kind of special privilege or exemption from rules that other leaders in an organization abide by. So that was something that came up in the Ravi Zacharias story, as you alluded to with technology, he had multiple cell phones and nobody was allowed to look at them and nobody was allowed to question why you might have multiple cell phones, but also um, other staff at his ministry had to agree to only travel so many days of the year. It was like a hundred days max. You know, the idea being like, you need to be in your, with your family, in your organization, you need to be at home in regular rhythms, not living out life on the road. 
Um, because again, like life on the road leads to a kind of nobody knows what I'm doing. <laughs> right. I can kind of do things in secret that I couldn't get away with at home. I thought a hundred um, days was a lot even. Yeah. I guess depending it, well, on what you exactly. do for the, for the company though. Yeah. Right. And he, you know, had a special exemption. Like he was a lot, he traveled up to 300 days a year. Hmm. And I guess the idea among his colleagues was either, well, who are we to tell him he can't travel? He's the boss. You know, we we work for the organization bearing his name. Mm. But maybe also, well, but that's good for the ministry. Like, we need him out on the road because he's the figure. Like, he's he's the brand. He's the name and face that people want to come see at fundraising events. So we can't risk curtailing his privileges because of the effect it could have on our ministry and our effectiveness. The request of special privileges or exemptions from rules of accountability that other people have to abide by would be a yellow flag. And I'm sure like me when I was reading, I was thinking, you know, don't these people report to anybody? And you point out that boards often just cannot do the things uh, that we mm. think they should be able to do to hold people accountable. Uh, why why don't boards of accountability work as you saw in these instances? Yeah, and it's not to say that they, they can't work, um, but they often are generally ineffective when I feel like wrangle is the only word that like the best word that comes to mind when we're talking about such big charismatic figures who have obviously been deemed so important in an organization or church. Um, you know, oftentimes, as we've already discussed, that person is kind of verbally abusive. Nobody wants to be the recipient of that kind of wrath, especially if it's in front of other people. So it could be fear or intimidation. Some of it is, I look up to you as a mentor, as a hero. Mm. You are the person who brought me to faith. So like, who am I to try to hold you accountable? Because you're obviously more spiritual or wiser than I am. Like mm. that power differential can make it really hard to like stand up to the person who you look to as your mentor. And then some of it too is that if there are people on the board who themselves are seeking a kind of celebrity or other forms of power, they don't want to curtail the celebrity figure's power because it means curtailing their own power. Mm. <laughs> so like if I, you know, if I work at Mars Hill, and I want to write a book, and part of what's going to make the book deal work is that I bear the imprimatur of Mark Driscoll, and I need to be in his good graces to do that. Well, I'm not going to stand up to him because he's not going to like that, and then I won't get the thing that I want via uh, my my proximity to the celebrity figure. Yeah. So... Yeah, Mark Driscoll is a difficult case, and, and I didn't follow it closely when it was all unfolding. Um, but 
I do remember I was a fairly new Christian. I'd only been a Christian for a few years when I went to the seminary. And I remember right around the time, like late 90s, early 2000s, Mark Driscoll had started doing some things. And the first thing I remember was hearing there was going to be a cage match at his church. And we were discussing that as, you know, a lot of males together at a seminary were discussing this. And uh, I just remember hearing, you know, everything people would give me quotations. Well, he said this and he called guys this. And uh, as, you know, former military guy was just like, this just doesn't sound right. Like it's, it all smelled funny to me. And so there's a, there's like like a point in the book where I'm thinking, I'm just going to hand this to anybody who goes to a church of more than 500 people, because I feel like Mm. you need, you need to have this as kind of a handbook for what to look for and what to be unaware (laughs) of. Um, But in some ways it also, and, and maybe that was the naive young Christian who was just reading the New Testament and, you know, thinking like, oh, I need to sell everything. You know, maybe I was a little overboard back in those days and uh, take a vow of poverty. But there was a sense in which uh, everything we're talking about just seems ridiculous in some way, mm. right? Um, it mm-hmm. just seems like clearly over the top, you know, especially the mm. way you, you discuss it and you you juxtapose it against Jesus's teaching and how some people have taken Jesus's teaching, but what he really meant. Um, so I wonder how did we, you know, what you point out clearly is these people have a support network. They don't get there by their, by themselves. Mm -hmm. How did we get to the point where Mm -hmm. this seemed normal? Um, Mm -hmm. which I, that's Mm -hmm. a real question because I I actually do not know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think some of it is a distinctly American problem and it's not to say that churches, in other parts of the world don't have their local celebrities, but there is something about an American fixation on numerical growth Mm -hmm. on corporations and like growing corporations and the fusion of business and religion that with, with the charismatic CEO at the helm kind of drawing attention and excitement to the growth I think, you know, the mega church movement exists because, <laughs> not to pick on baby boomers, but it was the baby boomers' fault. Um, you baby boomers were so tired of, like, rote, it was stuffy, boring church. And, you know, to their credit, actually wanted people to start coming to church again who were disenfranchised mm-hmm. and looked at what was working in the worlds of business and decided we can learn from that world. And mega churches have been a very durable and some would say successful model of church growth in America. I mean, certainly the most successful by numerical growth of the last 25 years. And yet I think now, or maybe at least in the last time, I mean, there, there has always been a kind of countercultural dimension within American evangelicalism asking these bigger philosophical questions about how we're doing ministry. And uh, maybe there was a problem in borrowing too much from the world of business when we're trying to preach the gospel of Jesus. Um, But I think now we're kind of dealing with, we're, we're grappling with the fact that how you do things is as important as what you're doing. And That celebrity is not just a neutral tool that can kind of be used to fuel this numerical growth, but it actually has deeply shaped our conceptions of what we look for in leaders, um, 
you know, it is crucial to the kind of parachurch religious, um, like the worlds of publishing and conferences, mm-hmm. but also, you know, how is it shaping our understanding of discipleship hmm. and what it means to live a impactful, which is not a word that I like. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I'm glad but, you said that because I've heard it a lot more lately and I'm like, I cringe every time I hear it, but I know what you mean. It's, though. It's, it, yeah. A, a, a meaningful, yeah. a fruitful, but see, even those metaphors are so much better, right? Yeah. Because something can be fruitful and very unflashy and grow very slowly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to look at agricult- the agricultural metaphor and um, I just wonder if, too, we're in a time when Christians have wondered if we just kind of have to play by worldly rules in, or, in order to get a foot in the door. Hmm. Like, maybe it's okay our pastor is kind of a celebrity figure who takes photos of himself with Justin Bieber because it's showing his followers that Christians can be cool and it's giving us a level of kind of cultural credibility and maybe that's what we need Hmm. um so i think there are a lot there are a lot of factors but certainly the kind of mixing of business and religion um the rise of you know kind of individual authority over and against institutional authority uh kind of parachurch religious like the world of publishing and conferences and then maybe christians just feel insecure Hmm. (laughs) and they're just looking for like a cool christian to attach to yeah it struck me also that going to because i've been to willow creek when i was a children's pastor i used to go to children's conferences there um like children's ministry conferences there and i it was my first time being in a place that held more than 500 people i think that was called a church and you talked about social influence without proximity. It seems to run both ways as well. If you just want to show up and not ever really be known, of course mm. they they talk about small groups and they talk about smaller ministries. But even their mm-hmm. you know their second grade ministry was like two hundred and eighty five kids or something like that. You know, um, wow. <laughs> so there's a sense where it kind of affords both people the kind of thing they want. Um, the, mm. the light religious contact and the inspirational time together, but no real deep connection Mm. like my celebrity pastor really isn't going to ask me to do anything hard (laughs) and they're not going to point out my personal sin from the pulpit (laughs) only by accident as well (laughs) (laughs) right 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 like they're they'll probably give some like generic call for people to be generous but they're not gonna like sit down and ask me like hey you haven't been at church for the last three months we've really missed you like what's going on because yeah. how could they possibly know that you haven't been at the church if there are 20,000 other people there? And uh, so last question. Um, I think it's still true that the average church in America is under 85 people. Mm. Um, so there's you know, there's a sense in what you say, like, what does this matter? Okay, so there are these one-off celebrities. Maybe we just put them all in a bucket where we say, ah, oh, they're all going to steal money and have sex with somebody else eventually, and we just kind of throw them to the curb mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a reason to think about this? Even if you know, even if we cut them off and say they're not part of our Christianity, uh, is there a reason mm-hmm. why we still need to all think about this in a small church setting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that 
it's, you know, the most egregious examples of celebrity power gone wrong in the church happen to be (laughs) at very large, prominent churches that will get the attention of national media. And that's why we know about the scandals because... And we know the details of the scandals, too. Right, right. They had reached that level of prominence. But, I mean, celebrity dynamics can play out in small churches. They can play out in churches with really strong denominational ties. I don't think... It's true to think, oh, this is this is just that weird non-denominational world thing. And I am someone who is for denominational oversight and structure, but it can be the case where, you know, a denomination is struggling and they have that one kind of pastor that's you know, maybe it's not 20,000 people coming to church, but maybe the church which has been struggling for years is now attracting all these people and mm. and denominational leaders can be really reticent to hold that person accountable because that person is seen as key to the denomination's growth or existence in the next 10, 20 years. Like, oh, but we need pastor so-and-so to be in the spotlight because they're drawing so much good attention, so much good attention to our church, you know? So I literally feel like you're addressing an exact situation that I've been a part of. (laughs) I mean, really? yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds like you're talking directly about this situation. So yes, this is real. Yeah, you're, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very grateful to have not, I, to my, well, no, that's not true. I was just about to say, I've never been in a church where the pastor acted like a celebrity, but I have been, but I wasn't there for very long. Um, but yeah, it, it, we, we are, we are wise to be on the lookout for these dynamics of social power without proximity um, and putting anybody on a pedestal in any organization, regardless of the size of it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think you know, we, we all have a role to play because people wouldn't be on pedestals if we didn't put them there. Um, so really asking deeper questions about why we keep doing that, like why we mm-hmm. keep acting as if there are certain people who are, like closer to God or act as God's mouthpiece or are just too important or too spiritual to fail um, or to question. Um, Yeah. That's something that all of us can do regardless of the size of our organization. Hmm. Caitlin Beatty. Thanks uh, for this book. Celebrities for Jesus, how personas platforms and prophets are hurting the church. Highly, highly recommend. Thank you for your wisdom and guidance on this topic. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. It's good to chat. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.